Welcome to Medieval Moments. You're just 20 wizard's paces away from swords, sorcery, and bad hygiene. <laughs> right this way, please. Excuse me, my good man. I believe thou meant to say, righteth this wayeth. <laughs> <laughs> to the most poorest podcast you're going to find along your travels of the tubes of the internet. I'm ready, a SpongePod Squarecast. I'm your captain, Captain Eric. It's a pleasure to welcome you aboard and happy Thanksgiving. Happy Turkey Day to all of the ready crew out there. I am recording this the morning of Thanksgiving on the same day of release. Isn't that something? Old, late moment Captain Eric, but... There is certainly reasonings for this. For those longtime listeners might remember, I have mentioned before that I work in the retail sector, and this week, along being Thanksgiving week or uh, just a simple day off for some others, a day to watch football, a day to get together for family and friends, whatever you want to call it, it's also one of the biggest retail selling weeks in the entire calendar year, so I have had a lot on my plate this week, and... Also on top of it is this SpongeBob SquarePants special that we have to look at today. And even on top of that, us 90s kids couldn't take a break. One week we lose the legendary and iconic Kevin Conroy. And the next week I I hear of news of of the green slash white Power Ranger from the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers original series and of course some of its subsequent shows Jason David Frank and his passing. And Power Rangers may not be as important to me as Batman, but certainly that first series and and honestly my feelings over the character of Tommy Oliver have been a part of my life for for some time. So at the end of the podcast, just like last week, I will have a little something to say about Jason David Frank. As for this morning, SpongeBob making another return to the Macy's Thanksgiving Day parade, although I actually didn't even look and see what his uh, balloon was. I was doing so much this morning. Let's see. Macy's Thanksgiving Day 2022. Let's see what kind of balloon they uh, they popped out for. Or maybe it's still... No, he's flying high, and it looks like, it looks like he has Gary on his back yet again. I really like the SpongeBob Gary balloon out of, out of all of the balloons they've had. It looks the cleanest. Um, you know, the Santa hat one is actually pretty iconic and Macy's made SpongeBob their official, uh, ambassador for Christmas this one entire year. I think the year they debuted that, uh, that Santa hat SpongeBob, but I genuinely love the Gary balloon, but I hope one of these years we, we get a Patrick balloon of some sort or even a Squidward balloon where he just doesn't look like he cares that much that he's a a balloon and he's flying over the crowd. You would think Squidward having that massive crowd would, would just have this massive gleam of, of excitement on his face. But I think it would be funny if we just had a, just a standard Squidward looking bored Macy's uh, Thanksgiving day balloon. As a kid, those balloons were always 
really exciting to see because, you know, to see a character made like that, it's it's impressive. So for those of you who enjoyed the parade this year, I hope it was a good one. And for those of you enjoying uh, your family, your friends, a nice dinner, some football, I hope it's a good day. Genuinely, from the bottom of my heart, I am genuinely thankful for each and every one of you. Thank you for being a part of my life. It is certainly a pleasure. The episode of the day for SpongeBob SquarePants is, as I mentioned, another SpongeBob SquarePants special, but a first for SpongeBob to not feature any bit of Patchy the Pirate at all. Now, the last special, Have You Seen the Snail, which was the first of season four, this one being the second and last of season four, didn't feature Patchy as well in any sort of live action capacity. But at the beginning of that episode, we did get an animated Patchy of some sort introducing the episode as a SpongeBob special. And they went through the effort of making that little bumper. And I think it just would have been smart to continually use that if they had no intention of using Patchy whatsoever. SpongeBob fans, three seasons and one special in season four have been of the understanding that when you see Patchy the Pirate, it's a SpongeBob special. Now, maybe they thought that they didn't want to be tied down to having to use that Patchy bumper and just thought, you know what, let's pull the Band-Aid off. We're going to do more of these every season or or every other season or so, and we're not going to always use Patchy the Pirate, so let's just not make it a thing anymore. Let's not make it a an expected occasion. But another bit that is expected when it comes to Spongebob specials is the alternate titles that come along with their co-promotions with other companies. Uh, Many other Spongebob specials do not use the episode's title at hand for the advertisement for the episode. I'll give you an example. Another Spongebob in time episode, Ugg, was not promoted as Spongebob Squarepants Ugg. Although, I think that would have been ingenious and would have gotten straight to the point of it being a caveman or prehistoric episode. But instead, for its advertisement, SpongeBob goes prehistoric, is what it was known as. Then when you watch the special, it's called SpongeBob BC, before comedy, before we get to the actual episode, Ugg. So that, that's a natural occurrence. And some of these occasions, I, I simply believe that the episode at hand of the SpongeBob segment could have been used as the as the overall promotional name. Even for this special, I genuinely believe Dunces and Dragons, a simple yet clever play on the name Dungeons and Dragons, the popular tabletop game that features knights and dragons and literally anything your imagination could pop out of it as long as you have a creative dungeon master. Uh, Shout out to you, Pat. Hopefully we can start another campaign soon. Yes, I have been playing Dungeons & Dragons, which may not be shocking to uh, anyone who finds out. I also have a SpongeBob podcast. But I honestly only started a couple of years ago, and we only played in person once, and ever since then have taken our exploits over to Discord and Roll20. Shout out to that website. I think it's a wonderful place if you want to start playing Dungeons & Dragons and don't have a a massive group of friends around you to get in person. You don't even have to buy any of the pieces or even your own dice. I'm not sponsored by that website, but I have been using it for a few years and enjoy it 
very much so. Dungeons and Dragons is pretty much any other video game RPG out there where you're leveling up your fighter, you're going through campaign after campaign, mission after mission, big open world. That's essentially Dungeons and Dragons without really much of the imagination that has to come from you and the Dungeon Master. I mean, the Dungeon Master in that case would be the developer of the game. They've they've pretty much come up with everything that's in your path, and you have to overcome it. So that's that's essentially what happens. You strip all that down, and as creative as you can be is going to come back to you tenfold in the game, as long as you have other creative people with you. It's certainly a fun time, and it's a well-known game that's been around for decades. And I think the co-promotion alongside Dungeons & Dragons would have been interesting. Although, this episode came out years before Stranger Things, which pretty much made Dungeons & Dragons a, a mainstream commodity, more so than it was in the year that this came out in 2006. It would be a few more years before Dungeons & Dragons would regain its its like massive popularity with the general public. I don't know if it ever had that level that it does now, but I'm glad it's riding the wave it is. So the promotion of this episode was not Dunces and Dragons, but it was called SpongeBob SquarePants Lost in Time, which is actually a really smart branding if they wanted to continue these kinds of episodes that took SpongeBob characters and just placed them in a different element. Of, of time, a different place, and they certainly would go back to this trope a few other times, and, and I just think the Lost in Time moniker could have been something they continually used. What happened, at least with this moniker that I remember, is the co-promotion with Burger King, which produced, in, in my opinion, is one of the best co-promotions, kids' meal lineups that they've ever had, these little SpongeBob statues. They were almost pretty much the size of everyday pop figures that you would find from Funko, but they gave away these things in kids' meals, and they featured SpongeBob donning different attires from around the world and from different points in time, including one of my favorite things I've ever taken out of a kids' meal bag, which is SpongeBob as a Canadian Mountie. I did it once, and I'll do it twice! Because like you said, Jimmy, the Mountie always gets his man! One of the best co-promotions they ever had with SpongeBob SquarePants, at least in my opinion. As far as the episode at hand, Dunces and Dragons is the 66th episode overall of SpongeBob SquarePants, and it first premiered on February 20th, 2006. It was storyboard-directed, by Zeus Service and Eric Weiss. Shout out Eric, whose new show Sonic Prime is going to be dropping soon on Netflix. Gonna have to check that out. By the way, Eric having worked on SpongeBob SquarePants and then working with Sonic the Hedgehog is like achieving two of the Triforce for Captain Eric. Sonic the Hedgehog was the first fictional character I can think of that I was ever introduced to. Now, even though he worked on uh, DC's League of Super Pets, I'd have to say I don't really fully consider that a Batman project. So if Eric ever works on something that is strictly Batman, as far as I'm concerned, he has the Triforce of Captain Eric completed. Unless there's a secret Batman project he had worked on, but I'm sure I will uh, find out about that at some point. 
but this was storyboard directed by Eric there, who also wrote it alongside Zeus and Tim Hill. Our animation directors are Alan Smart and Tom Yasumi. Our technical director is Vincent Waller, and our supervising producer is Paul Tibbet. Yes! Oh my god! As this episode begins, we are introduced to an entirely new location inside of Bikini Bottom, Medieval Moments, which is a play or a parody on the Medieval Times line of restaurants, which, just like you see in this episode, are restaurants that you go to where they stage fictional medieval sword fights and jousting tournaments, and they have a king and a queen, and everybody there serving you treats you like you're a lord, and you're you're taken back in time to medieval times, which we, we all know were an extremely fun time, right? Yes, me lord. Even though you're getting a dinner when you go to medieval times, nobody simply goes to medieval times just for the food. You go for the experience. And even if you're going to tell me, oh, it's for the food, well, the way they give you the food, the way they cook the food and prepare the food, that's a part of the experience too, brother. All right? So, and it's no different here in medieval moments. SpongeBob and Patrick are excited to get into this place, sit down, and watch themselves the jousting tournament. And for some reason... They are serving mutton legs at Medieval Moments. I can handle tiny portions of food ending up underwater, but I I laughed legitimately when Patrick showed up with the uh, with the mutton leg. At the beginning of this episode, though, I, I do have to say, I forgot, I, I just hopped over one of my notes here. Right out of the gate, legitimately right when Medieval Moments opens up, SpongeBob and Patrick are introduced to their first employee of this establishment who introduces them to Medieval Moments. SpongeBob corrects this, this introduction, and the employee's response to this had me legitimately on the floor laughing. I have not seen this episode since its premiere. I've seen it in, in bits and pieces. Catching it on television, it's certainly been in the background, but as far as... Captain Eric sitting down and watching this from bell to bell. It hasn't happened since it premiered on television. I don't know why. I can't tell you that I walked away from this saying I disliked this episode. I, I certainly liked it. I guess just not enough to ever really put it on before any other episodes. But I was taken aback by that that opening bit because, man, do I feel like that employee sometimes. when When some people... And it's not even on purpose. It's not like they're trying to annoy you. But when somebody comes in and points something out about your job that, that just might be obvious, might be just something you haven't gotten to yet, it's, yeah, you can have that feeling of this employee there of just like, ah, you can't really say anything. You just eat it, deal with it, move on with your day. I feel for this employee. I completely understand SpongeBob's correction there being, uh, being maybe his last nerve. We are introduced to the king and queen of this establishment. We don't know the queen's name, but King Mori introduces us to medieval moments. And I don't know if these actors are just so good that they're putting on an extra performance of a lazy king and a queen who is there to kick him in the pants, or this actor or employee legitimately does not want to be the king of medieval moments and simply just doesn't want to do his job. I have no idea, 
but I'm I'm here for King Mori. I'm here for the Queen. He announces the jousting tournament, which everybody has seemingly showed up for. It's been previously announced. But instead of there being actual jousting competitors that have already been previously chosen and, and set up, he asks the crowd if there's anybody who wants to volunteer to be a part of the jousting tournament. SpongeBob and Patrick are among the two that are shooting their hands up the highest. They want to be chosen, and they are. They are instantly chosen, brought down to the arena, get, you know, put in all of this medieval-looking attire, helmets, put on the horses, and it's in this moment, the seahorses, by the way, not actual horses, but in this moment, SpongeBob and Patrick realize that they are not volunteering to just watch the jousting tournament up close, but are now a part of of the actual joust. I also have no idea what this place is thinking when it comes to the weapons that they're handing people, but it seemed to me that the actual weapons they handed these guys were legitimate. And that's not to say that when it comes to, um, you know, the staged or just safer jousts that happen today aren't done, you know, with weapons that could harm you legitimately if used in the wrong way, that's not my uh, my intention. I know that even under the safest circumstances, jousting could still yield some some severe injuries. It's you're dealing with horses, you're dealing with long rods. Even if they're padded at the end, you're knocking somebody off a horse. Things could happen. But if you notice the weapon that SpongeBob had, it didn't look like it was anything that was meant to be of safe use. It looked like it was a legitimate, like, sword. I don't know what they call those. Let me look this up. I don't want to be uh, rude to the jousting community. Jousting sword. What is a jousting sword called? The weapon we use for jousting is called a lance. I knew that. I felt like I... Maybe I just completely forgot about that. Yeah, so the lance there that SpongeBob is given is made to feel like it's a legitimate weapon. There's a sound effect used that gives off that this thing is sharp. And I don't think it's really smart for them to have uh, have handed him that weapon. If they gave Patrick the lance and had him go after SpongeBob, I would at least feel a little bit better about SpongeBob's uh, safety. Both characters not really, you know, being trained in jousting in any capacity end up getting launched from their seahorses through the wall of medieval moments which is a stone wall. This place is built like a castle. What is really funny here is visually both Patrick being launched and leaving a star-shaped exit hole through the wall and SpongeBob leaving a square one, which I, it's a simple gag, but it's effective. It's it's funny. I, I love when they do stuff like that. When the characters land on the ground outside, they find themselves in 12th century Bikini Bottom. And it is legitimately medieval times around them now. SpongeBob and Patrick have somehow been transported to the legitimate medieval of, of their past. And it's in this past that they go on a new adventure and find themselves among many characters who look familiar. Now, honestly, I enjoy the setup of this episode a little bit, but I think to be able to spend more time with the medieval characters, I kind of wish this pulled the same card that Ugg did 
where we just get to look into the past and, and see these characters interact with one another. And I think we are robbed a bit of seeing an actual medieval SpongeBob, a medieval Patrick, how they how they interact in this world, how they exist inside of this kingdom that is ruled over by King Krabs and his beautifully designed castle, which sits up on a perch, and King Krabs' castle is designed like a stone, crusty crab. I absolutely love that design choice. And of course, across from the kingdom of King Krabs is Planktonomore, who sits in a castle that would make Sauron blush. And all of the design choices of this episode, all of the design choices of the new characters in the background, all of the medieval characters, I dig it. I love it. I love the aesthetic. The one thing that does bother me, I'll say it's not just all praise everywhere about. I understand the the visual need for it to truly distinguish it from, you know, current day Bikini Bottom, but the sky is not blue in olden time Bikini Bottom. It is yellow, which means that the water around them is not as blue or clear. It's just a visual that when I see it and I think a little more about it, I don't like going down that path. So it just, it's its certainly helpful to distinguish this as a different place, a different time. But uh, the, the color choice is certainly one that doesn't really sit well with me. That That is my only real complaint here over the, the visual style of the, of the old bikini bottom. SpongeBob and Patrick immediately find themselves captured by a bunch of guards. They they think it's employees of, of Medieval Moments. They have no idea that they're in a different time. They just think that they're just more a part of the show now than they were and are brought to the dungeon of King Krabs. Speaking of visually loving this episode, the dungeon and some of the aesthetics placed in the dungeon, I, I absolutely adore. The fact that there's a skull still sitting in a vice grip made me laugh. I have no, I have no idea why I didn't expect it. I didn't remember it from last time, but just seeing that sitting in the background made me laugh. Why is that there? And there is a lot of skeletons in the dungeon along with a new character, a far gone ancestor of Squidward Tentacles, Squidly, the King's Royal Fool. Squidly has been thrown in the dungeon for apparently giving a bad joke to the king. According to Squidly, he is his favorite fool, and through song and joke brings joy to the king's face, but due to one bad joke, he was thrown into the dungeon. Wow. What was happening to Squidly in 2006 really sounds like what is happening in 2022, am I right? When we first meet Squidly, he is struggling with a clarinet, which, of course, we are we are used to seeing squids not playing the clarinet very well. And because of his struggle with this instrument, he curses his far-gone grandchild to go through the same turmoil with the clarinet. That's a, that's a really funny wrinkle. I know that this episode, in some case, may be a dream and is not necessarily showing us true ancestors of these characters. If it is, and Squidly, this happens to be a legitimate ancestor of Squidward, that bit 
of him cursing his uh, his great 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 grandchild. I might have added or, or missed a, a great there, but either way, it is meant to be Squidward. That bit is hilarious. I I love that. Um, at first, I was shocked to know that this town had a bowling alley, as the wizard's dragon. Planktonomore is is known as the wizard in this in this realm, and he has a dragon at his disposal that he sends over to the village, destroying it along with their bowling alley. And I was shocked at first, like, <laughs> they had a bowling alley? And then immediately remembered, wait, they had bowling in prehistoric times. Bedrock was the, the capital of bowling in the world millions of years ago. So I, I don't know why I was so shocked by that. Bowling alleys have been around forever. Yeah, but Jabba. <laughs> the dragon, though, you might imagine is going to be designed after some other undersea creature. And I'm so glad that instead of trying to design an undersea dragon, they simply reused something we already have, which is a giant jellyfish that shoots out fire. It shoots out, you know, well, I mean, uh, a king jellyfish and jellyfish shoot out electricity. This one just shoots out a bit more juice and has a tail and has a little bit of a of a mohawk kind of to distinguish it as more of a dragon than a jellyfish. No one actually announces it as a jellyfish. Takes out the entire village. As Planktonomore is just trying to get the king out of the kingdom so that he can take it over. It's not an ingredient or something that the king owns that Planktonomore is after, although the king owns I guess the village, and that's what he's after. He's just after the kingdom. It's not like it's just one possession, like the Krabby Patty secret formula, as Plankton, his ancestor, or possible ancestor, would eventually continually go after. Well, I guess in a way, the Krabby Patty secret formula is the key to the kingdom of all of the consumers of Bikini Bottom having that that luxury. So... In a way, this is smart of Planktonomore wanting the kingdom just legitimately. This is like if Plankton was just going after the Krusty Krab and just wanting to own that, which, you know, that's that's a smart move as well instead of just trying to steal the formula for the Krabby Patty. I'm all about the design of, of Mr. Krabs in this, in this new attire. Of course, purple being one of my favorite colors. Pretty obvious if you ask me. Of course! And of course, he is joined in his court by Princess Pearl, who, out of all of the characters, either name-wise or design-wise, went through the least amount of changes. She gets to keep her actual name of, of at least Pearl, and she just happens to be the princess. We get a little cameo of Gary as a leech, which to me was very similar to Mr. Krabs' cameo as that tiny little rock crab from Ugg, where there's just this one character that doesn't get a, a prominent role, but they just still feature him as, hey, here's their ancestors. So we get to see uh, Gary here as a, as a tiny little leech. And in walk SpongeBob, Patrick, and Squidly. They are brought from the dungeon up to the king. SpongeBob and Patrick are able to coax the uh, guards to to let Squidly come back up to the king's side and and present a new song that hopefully he would enjoy 
And even though he told us he was the king's favorite, King Krabs is not at all happy to see Squidly in any capacity. You would think that if you had a favorite jester for a few years, one bad joke sends him to the dungeon, maybe some time away would at least soften the blow and you would go, all right, hey, you gave me so many years of good comedy, good music, I'll give you another chance. But uh, King Krabs here does not seem at all like he wants to deal with Squidly. So I kind of doubt Squidly's uh, uh, claim there that he was the favorite. Maybe he had like one good bit and that was that was it. But then the next day he showed up with the with the rank joke or the song and got him got him sent into the dungeon. Although the start of this new song sends a smile to the face of King Krabs, it slowly turns into a roast of the king to the point that the end chorus is literally about how bad the king is. It's so catchy that SpongeBob and Patrick join in on the song about how terrible the king is, and this is visually sending King Krabs into a further rage before he announces that all three of them are due to be executed. Now, in this moment, SpongeBob does the one thing that you really shouldn't do if you are going to be executed by a king is just flat out announce that you're not from here. That's not going to um, change their decision at all. If anything, that's going to increase the reasoning for for getting you out of here. Oh, you're not from here? Well, then, then we have a solution on how to get you out. I also recommend not following that with saying that you're a time traveler because that argument is never going to work unless you have hard evidence. Unless you have some way in that moment to prove without a shadow of a doubt that you are not from this time. Just shouting that out as you are being dragged away is is never going to work. Wait a minute, hold on. Did you say you're a time traveler? Oh, you know what, buddy? C- come back here, come back here. You're not going to be killed. You're You're good. You're from another time? Oh, my mistake. Yeah, that's never going to happen. So poor SpongeBob here is being dragged over somewhere while Princess Pearl points out that these two beings, SpongeBob and Patrick, these two characters that say that they are not from here may be the prophecy that would say that two heroes would help out during a situation. And she points to these stained glass windows on the wall that depict all of the events that are going to happen or that have happened and show essentially the exact designs of SpongeBob and Patrick through these stained glass pictures. And unless you have evidence like that in your back pocket, I wouldn't yell that you're a time traveler. SpongeBob, Patrick, and Squidly are being dragged over and shown to the guillotine, a torturous device that quickly cuts through a tiny pineapple to showcase its effects A guillotine is a device in which somebody using a pulley and rope pulls up a sharp blade that is supposed to then, you know, be dropped down onto something cutting it. I would say one of my my unsung treasures of the Sega Genesis is the game Decap Attack. It's the the most I'm going to say about uh, what occurs when you are laid down on a guillotine. SpongeBob, unfortunately, is chosen first and is placed inside of this guillotine. And right as that happens, I receive a call from my mother. 
I receive a call from my mom, and when I'm on a phone conversation, I, I won't usually sit down. I'll just kind of walk around. I'll pace a little bit. And I paused the uh, video, and I got up, and I'm, I'm just walking around. We're talking, and every time I look over at the television, it is, without question, one of the saddest screenshots I could have left on the television. SpongeBob in, in like, mid freak out, tears, a sniffle on his face, head in a guillotine. The lever is about to be pulled. And I just left it on the television there. So I have a 20-minute phone conversation with my mom. Every time I go anywhere near the television, I happen to look over and I'm just like laughing to myself, but also horrified at just this is stuck on my TV. And what makes things worse is no joke. After I get off the phone with my mom, I go and sit down, and the batteries in the remote just stop working. So I go to unpause it. I go to, to press play, and this still shot of SpongeBob in the guillotine is now stuck on my TV. I got to actually stand up and and give a round of applause to those to those who worked on this episode who had the cojones to go through, follow through with putting SpongeBob in a guillotine. I didn't appreciate that as a kid. I I didn't. The visual doesn't stay in your head as long. It quickly, you know, happens, and they move on from that part of the story. I will tell you, having seen that picture for, for more than 20 minutes, the impact certainly stuck with me, and it, it was a moment that I'm glad they, they had the... Uh, the, the wherewithal to push through. It, it certainly makes you think, you know, that's the fear that I have with, you know, when people talk about going back in time, they just think about all the financial benefits that they could, they could reap from that, from that happening. But I just think about all of the danger that I'm going to run into. I don't want to go back to the West. I couldn't go into a saloon and talk my way out of a situation. I'd be strung up from my legs, tied to a horse, sent through the town. And I certainly would not want to go back to medieval times. That would would not be a fun situation. I don't have the good looks of Heath Ledger to get to get through a situation in medieval times. I would certainly find myself in a in a SpongeBob situation here, which I gotta say, for the television show up to this point, is is a jarring moment. The SpongeBob death. The SpongeBob and Patrick death in the SpongeBob SquarePants movie is iconic and certainly can't be topped for its emotional stakes and just for what is happening to them. But for the television show up to this point, if someone had not watched the movie, SpongeBob being placed in that guillotine, that's uh, that's up there. King Krabs at this moment comes shooting into the room like Luigi's green missile. Mamma mia! and stops the execution, as it was Princess Pearl who brought to his attention the uncanny resemblance of Spongebob and Patrick to those on their their prophecy on these windows. He stops the execution, but before he could properly apologize to these two, Princess Pearl is kidnapped by the dragon and sent to the evil wizard Planktonimore. In this moment, King Krabs does get to somewhat apologize for his mistake and sends SpongeBob and Patrick on a quest 
to retrieve Princess Pearl from the clutches of the evil wizard. SpongeBob and Patrick, in, in one of my favorite visual gags that they've done in this season, kicking themselves out of the room. I, I love whoever came up with that idea and the the visual execution of it is is as funny as thinking of it. Squidward is sent alongside SpongeBob and Patrick in their quest to save Princess Pearl. That is the end of Act One. That is essentially the end of a of a normal SpongeBob episode, and and that's where we would say goodbye and see you next week. Uh, please take care. Spike your hair. You know all that. Everything that Captain Eric tells you at the end of every episode. But we're not stopping here. But wait, there's more. Because we have an Act Two to follow. For this episode, this is, of course, a two-part episode. And SpongeBob, Patrick, and Squidly are walking through the town on their way to the blacksmith to get fitted for armor and find themselves weapon for the oncoming battle. Uh, I love the bit here with Patrick's helmet. And they've, they've done this bit before, and it's happened in cartoons, but this one, for some reason, is one of the funniest instances where Patrick is handed, he's already wearing a helmet. It's the helmet he's been wearing the entire episode since Medieval Moments placed it atop his head. And he's handed an identical helmet from the blacksmith, and he just places it over the other helmet, and it fits on perfectly. And just visually, I love it. Um, I, I, If I remember correctly, there might have even been just a little bit of a audio of the metal or something. Just, I love it. I love that moment. SpongeBob, on the other hand, equips himself with some Lord Farquaad-sized uh, gauntlets, some leg gauntlets, or just the normal style, you know, armor for legs. I don't know if you would necessarily call those those parts gauntlets, but SpongeBob is extremely tall. He's actually very reminiscent of uh, the the chaperone when he went long, tan, and handsome to attend the prom with Pearl. So it's kind of interesting here that he dons the the tall attire to save Princess Pearl uh, during this situation. Now, all of the weapons, including the sword the blacksmith currently made for SpongeBob, are all too heavy for him to handle, which is extremely funny. But of course, the blacksmith, for some reason, has a, a jellyfishing net. And the second that's brought into play, we all know, oh yeah, that's SpongeBob's weapon of choice going into battle. But of course, as always, SpongeBob with a jellyfish net is is usually handier than anyone else with that net otherwise. As they make their way to Planktonomore's lair, he watches them from a Wizard of Oz a uh, Wicked Witch of the West-style crystal ball. And as it zooms out, we see Princess Pearl tied up in his lair uh, atop of this giant tower. And we later find out that the crystal ball is, in fact, this era's version of Karen. An incredibly smart way to include Karen in this episode with Plankton, making him a wizard, and having her as the crystal ball, just, I, I don't remember my thoughts of that when this first aired, 
But I can just tell you, as I was watching this now, I thought that's that's just an ingenious way to to find an inclusion of this computer character. Because think about this. Trying to include Karen in prehistoric times would have been interesting. Although I, I probably would have had her as just a cave drawing. Just uh, the the symbols, the, the lines of how she talks, but just written on a, on a wall with Plankton and maybe Karen written above it or something. But, uh, yeah, it's just, I love the whole idea of the crystal ball being Karen here. Really do. Plankton's whole lair aesthetic is really nice. Really, you know, a lot of it did give me the, the same kind of feeling of the Wicked Witch of the West's lair that we see in the movie. Uh, Sans flying monkeys about and whatnot uh that certainly didn't have the same kind of furniture and whatnot but there was just a very similar feeling plankton's whole aesthetic and attire i i would have to say out of all of the characters to be redone in this in this world in this style he he would have to be the one i would point to um if you asked me do any of the characters could could they have used, you know, maybe another pass through in the art department? I, I would probably say Plankton. And I and I don't know if it's just the beard on Plankton or the color of his robes. But I I just feel like after they showed off the tower in this episode and you've you've seen it, they they could have just put a little bit more design to Plankton. He just the entire episode, you're not even really told his name is Planktonomore. You're just hearing that the wizard is is ruining things and sending the dragon, the wizard, the wizard. And when we finally see Plankton, he just looks like a wizard. He just looks like if you asked anybody to draw a wizard, it's like that sands the, the pointy hat with the stars and and moons on it. But uh I, I don't know. Plankton certainly has has donned some evil attires and and this is is one that, you know, I, I do like the beard on Plankton. That one I, I do like. It's just maybe if the robe was a different color than the purple of of Mr. Krabs, or if they didn't have purple for Mr. Krabs, if they had more red or some sort of color that represents the crusty crab a little bit more. I, I guess light purple since the the back of the sign is is purple. So light purple. But then Plankton, you know, give him more of a, a brownish, greenish color, like the uh the pale of, of the chum bucket. Even though the giant glove of the chum bucket is purple as well. Inside there there's certainly not purple anywhere to be found. The same thing for the Krusty Krab, too. Either way, I'm just saying between the two, I actually like the purple on Plankton a little bit more. And, and purple is usually a color more closely associated with villains than it is heroes. There's Thanos, there's Kang the Conqueror, who has purple associated in his costume. Um, on the hero side, even Hawkeye was a villain before he was a hero and he was wearing purple. So I'm just saying purple fits with the villains more. If I had to recolor 
the design of King Krabs. I think using the the light blue and the dark blue of his attire more in his his robes would have looked really cool. Would have looked really nice on top of the red and then, you know, the the stone cobble background of of the kingdom. But uh either way, I digress. Planktonomore is in his prime. He's in the moment. He has Princess Pearl. I can't believe I spent all that time talking about... Uh, whatever. It is what it is. This is my podcast. You're here for the ride. If you're 44 minutes deep into a podcast about Spongebob and you're with me all this way, then I, I feel like I can talk about anything. I, I got you. You're good. I'm, I'm at least self-aware is at least what I'm saying. All right, so... Planktonomore in control. He has Princess Pearl. He has the dragon all set up, and he's got an eye on our three heroes. And he knows before he even has to worry about them stepping into his lair, there are plenty of obstacles that they're going to have to tackle. One of them is guarding right outside the uh, the premises of Planktonomore's lair, there's a clear, like, wall between all of his land and the outside world. And right before the three of our heroes get even close to the entrance of that of that land, they are stopped by yet a new character to enter the field. A surprise ancestor. And I'm sure up to this point, if you lined up all the characters that we have interacted with, well, who else could it possibly be? The Dark Knight that we run into is actually an ancestor of Sandy. And surprisingly, somehow, the Dark Knight doesn't have to use any sort of device to breathe underwater. And you know what? It's one of these things that uh, we just... We just have to accept and and get it over with. In fact, the idea that this entire episode serves as a dream is just more of a reason to not have to worry about the fact that uh, this this caricature of Sandy, this version of Sandy, isn't wearing anything to help her breathe underwater. And they are certainly still underwater, even though there is lava, which... I think in certain pockets of the ocean, lava can still exist, and, and there's still pockets of it that can exist in the ocean. Let's, you know what? Lava in the ocean. I swear I have seen this. Is there lava in the ocean? It was only when scientists began sampling the deep ocean floor in the 1950s and 1960s that they realized that most of the ocean floor is composed of lava flows. In fact, more lava has erupted on the sea floor than anywhere on Earth, mostly from mid-ocean ridges, the longest chain of active volcanoes on our planet. And uh, just so you know, that information is from Woods Hole ocean graphic institution. And so, yeah, that is actually 
completely factual for there to be lava existing in this uh, in this realm. So they are underwater. There is lava, and there is also fire amongst amongst the uh, the medieval times of Bikini Bottom. But I mean, that's that's par the course for SpongeBob SquarePants. So doesn't really doesn't really matter. All I'm saying is the rules underwater sometimes are scientific even though they might seem completely, you know, illogical. Like Goo Lagoon is a great example of something that at first you might think, well, that's silly for there to be an ocean under the ocean until you look into it. And it is, in fact, a, a factual thing in some regard. The the lava we just looked into and found out can exist. So there's a lot that we look into and and can see is scientific within SpongeBob SquarePants. But then we get to moments in which there's, you know, a squirrel in a spacesuit, for one, is already a, an out-there thing that you have to just accept. But, hey, in this episode, this Sandy does not have any sort of uh, device at all, and you're just going to have to roll with it. It is what it is. It is what it is. It is what it is. When the Dark Knight first approaches our trio of heroes, whoever came up with the idea of the changing of Sandy's voice, there's like a, a dark level added to Sandy's voice here, kind of in the way that uh, that Batman would have it in in the Dark Knight trilogy. Or I guess more like the the Ben Affleck version of Batman who actually has a, a digital voice changer going on, which is generally smart since everybody seems to complain when Bruce Wayne decides to audibly, you know, or overtly change his voice to hide, you know, the fact that he's Bruce Wayne. Uh, we went over last week how Kevin Conroy was able to uh, perfect that, but I mean, he was a voice actor. That that was his job to, you know, perfect his voice. But uh, the Dark Knight here is is able to menacingly approach these three about what they're doing and who they are, and a fight breaks out between the Dark Knight and SpongeBob. SpongeBob, I have to give credit, is incredibly smart in this situation because of all of his experience fighting with Sandy back in bikini bottom. He has years of karate experience fighting uh, this, this character's future ancestor and brings a level of karate to the table that the dark Knight has never seen before has no idea what SpongeBob is doing and is capable of and is showcasing karate to its finest degree in the 18th century. This is, this is baffling to the Dark Knight and SpongeBob is able to absolutely take down the Dark Knight. It's incredible. It's, it's SpongeBob's finest hour. In terms of karate, we have seen incredible feats of karate from SpongeBob. But as far as I know, he has never truly bested Sandy in a karate sense. 
And more so, the Dark Knight seems to think that not only being taken down by this fighting style, it's one thing to be taken down. She's under the impression that SpongeBob, by lifting his hand, has the final blow intact and submits. Which, she really didn't have to. But SpongeBob decides to spare her life from this final blow of karate. And through this act, the Dark Knight decides to join their cause of taking down Plank Tonimore. Now, all the way back at the Kingdom of King Krabs, he receives a letter that says if he does not hand over the kingdom to Plank Tonimore, Princess Pearl will die. And that's a pretty grim sight as Princess Pearl is tied up over a pool of lava and is going to be dropped in at any moment. Planktonomore is making a demand and he is ready to act upon it. He also has guards at the bottom of his tower that remind me of the the guards outside of Pizza Planet from Toy Story. Not necessarily the designs of the guards themselves, but the the way that they, you know, block the door and and open it up just really reminds me of Pizza Planet. I that that entire scene I can only be reminded of of Toy Story in that moment in time. They uh they get inside of the tower by the dark knight pretending to have arrested these these three betrayers of Planktonimore and instead of just taking care of them she wants to personally bring them up to the man himself so that he may decide on the proper torture that could be placed upon them. And without notice, the Dark Knight decides to come up with what I imagine are a few previous forms of torture that she may have applied on on some other trespassers or traitors within Planktonimore's area of the land. And the guards are, uh, they're okay with this. They're open to this whole idea, and they, they let them inside. There is a long, long journey from the bottom of this tower all the way to the top. And when they reach the top of this tower, all that they find is Planktonimore and Princess Pearl above this this vat of lava that's just sitting there and, and ready for her to be dropped in at any moment. The dragon makes an appearance... And you think, boy, this is where the the jellyfish net is going to come into play. And if you thought that, well, then you're right. Because simply, SpongeBob pulls out his jellyfish net. And even though this, this dragon is the size of a king jellyfish, and the net that SpongeBob has is of regulation size, he is able to, with one swipe, place the entire dragon into the jellyfish net. And if you thought that was it, you are wrong. Because that dragon is not going to be stopped by this simple, small net. Luckily, throughout the episode, they they keep reminding you, and, and I have failed to mention it up to this point, that SpongeBob, at some point, had made himself a few Krabby Patties for, for some lunch or a picnic for him and Patrick and has kept them in a bag in his person. 
in this moment where the dragon is now going to take what may be the final blow on our heroes, SpongeBob, in one final attempt of, you know, saving his life, bribery, whatever, whatever you can do. I mean, if you have food on you and a bear is bagging you into a corner, what are you going to do? You're going to at least try to take out the food to see if that entices them so that you can get away. SpongeBob offers the dragon a Krabby Patty. And the dragon has clearly never tasted anything like this in its life. This Krabby Patty is so good that the dragon, the the whole bribery thing, is is an apt term in this moment because offering that Krabby Patty enticed the dragon to switch sides and zap Planktonomore, completely saving the day in one fail swoop. In one moment, offering this dragon one Krabby Patty with the promise that, hey, I'll I'll make more Krabby Patties for you. Is, is all it took for this dragon to go, yeah, I'm good. I don't need to be over here anymore. What a great end to the story. I I know that the uh, the jellyfish net was supposed to be the, the big moment for SpongeBob, given the placement of the episode and the, and the big, like, buildup of him getting his weapon to take on the, uh, the oncoming battle. But he was able to use it, and it did, you know, at least stall the dragon for for a few seconds. But I like that in the end, it did come come down to SpongeBob and his cooking. SpongeBob is one of the best chefs in fictional media, so at, at least for for the Krabby Patty, in what appears to be the most delicious, according to even King Neptune himself, is one of the most delicious things that you can ever consume. So, I mean, ask them. They're they're the ones uh they're the ones mentioning it. Um the look of SpongeBob after getting struck by the dragon in in this episode is is another great frame that I I have to shout out and that alongside of our entire talk of the guillotine earlier in the episode is in our episode in this podcast um that's just I'm sorry, I guess Spongebob being tortured in in Dunces and Dragons are some of the visual highlights that I can I can bring up. There is a victory parade for our heroes of Spongebob, Patrick, and Squiddly back in the kingdom of King Krabs. And what we end up finding out is the Dark Knight seems to have taken on the role of seemingly head of security for King Krabs. And King Krabs has been taught the recipe of the Krabby Patty or whatever this food is that he names the Krabby Patty so that he can keep feeding the dragon who now is also on his side. And isn't this interesting? Everybody had something to say when it came to Camp Coral and its episode about SpongeBob coming up with the Krabby Patty secret formula and then it eventually making its way over to Mr. Krabs. And then here we have an episode where SpongeBob knows the Krabby Patty secret formula, teaches 
Mr. Krabs' ancestor the formula. And if there is any truth to any of this world being of the actual ancestry, and this is a factual event that happened somehow, I mean, we'll, we'll get to the possibility in, in a second, then, you know, hey, here's another instance in the timeline where SpongeBob taught the Krabby Patty secret formula to Mr. Krabs in the past. Just, just an interesting food for thought. Throughout the episode, Squidly has shown a decent amount of skill in the singing department. But he should have stopped playing the clarinet all the way back in the dungeon. For some reason, during this joyous event, Squidly decides to pull out his clarinet and starts playing it, which causes an entire stir, almost a riot of sorts, with all the villagers. The horses that are holding SpongeBob and Patrick buck the two of them off as they fall back to the ground. And when they wake back up, they are all of a sudden in the middle of medieval memories. Right in the middle of the jousting tournament that they were a part of, and were told that they were knocked out and have been out cold this entire time, SpongeBob comes to and realizes that everything they must have gone through was a dream before Patrick stands up and tells SpongeBob, well, then you might as well tell Squidly, as we see that it was right on top of Squidly that Patrick landed after being bucked from the horse. And we now have, somehow, in this situation, Squidly in the normal Bikini Bottom times, as the episode ends. Now, it's a cartoon. Everything resets back to normal. Is Squidly hanging out in today's Bikini Bottom? Well, maybe we'll find out in a future episode. I have no idea. Did, did any of this actually happen back in the 12th century of Bikini Bottom? I forgot in my notes I had a 12th century here. I think earlier I said 18th century. Which one would actually be worse to go back in time to? The 18th century or the 12th century? That's, that's something to ponder for another time. But that is the episode, Dunces and Dragons. I, I have to say, I enjoyed this episode immensely during my watch-through this time around. I, I really, really did. And I can say without question, and I mean I'm recording it, so if I ever have to question myself, you can say, hey, Captain, go back to episode 142 and look back. But I can say, walking away from this episode, I have good feelings about it. I enjoyed it, even with the smallest nitpicks possible, in my opinion. I, I don't I don't think the the patchy bumper and the design of Plankton the Wizard, Planktonomore, I don't think those are, are deterrents to stay away from this episode. This is a wonderful SpongeBob SquarePants special. It's certainly one that if you enjoy the medieval world at all. This this is one that gives you enough of that within the, the realm of SpongeBob SquarePants, and I think I think you'll get a kick of it. You were kicked from the server. That is going to be it for this week's episode of I'm Ready, a SpongePod Squarecast. Thank you so much to each and every one of you who check out this show. I am grateful 
for any of you who consider yourself a part of the Ready Crew. Honestly, if you're joining me at this point in the podcast, it's safe to say you are on the Ready Crew. It's one of those things. You know how Davy Jones on his ship has all these rules on how you just join the crew? If you're going to hang out with me for an hour, well, then you can hang out with me for any amount of time. Welcome aboard. You're a part of the crew. If you would like to have more of Captain Eric, a part of your life, consider subscribing to the YouTube channel. The link is always in the podcast description. You can follow me on Twitter at I'm Ready Podcast. And you can follow me on Instagram at SpongeBob Podcast. Please check out my other podcast, This Week in Nickelodeon History, which drops every Sunday on most podcast providers. And if there's one that is out there that you preferably use and you do not see any of my podcasts available on that service, you can certainly let me know by emailing me at spongepodpodcast at gmail.com. That is the direct email for the show. You can email me any questions, comments, anything that you send me, I will read out on the show. And certainly, if you send me an email that is specifically calling out an element that is going to be coming up in an upcoming episode. I may hold back your email for that episode. So I know a few of you out there have sent me some some things that I haven't read yet. And I just want you to know that you haven't been forgotten about. And those emails are coming up for uh, specific episodes that you may have mentioned or that will fit better for the episode at hand. Podcast at gmail.com. If you would like to support Captain Eric in the best way possible, you can follow that Redbubble link in the podcast description or in the link from any of my socials. You can find yourself any of the logos and some more upcoming designs straight from Captain Eric that you can put on a multitude of different items, t-shirts, hats, even just a sticker that you can buy for a couple bucks. I think even just like a dollar or so. A pack of stickers of Captain Eric's logo, or the This Week in Nickelodeon History logo, or the I'm Ready, a SpongePod SquareCast logo. Anything that you purchase on there, anything that comes over to Captain Eric, is going to go right back into everything that I produce for you guys. So, I appreciate each and every one of you for your time. And right before we leave today, I just have a few words to say about the fallen green and white ranger, Jason David Frank. Thank you for your time. Thanks, guys. But, uh, it looks like I'm gonna need all the help I can get. Man, that dude is pumped. Who is he? I don't know. Probably some new kid in school. He is really cute. To the fall of Zordon and the destruction of the Power Rangers. You know what to do. Your wish is my command, Empress. I probably shouldn't 
record this right after watching that tribute video that the Power Rangers put out in regards to the passing of Jason David Frank. But if you haven't seen that, it encompasses in a minute more so what Jason meant to the Power Rangers franchise for this part of the world than anything I could say. So I I would say if you do anything with your time, certainly watch that video. It encompasses so much of what this, this actor was able to do. Just to let you know, back when I was a young kid, of course Power Rangers was was right on my radar. It was impossible not to have kids in, into Power Rangers at school. And after checking it out myself, I, you know, found it was impossible not to fall in love with this world. With the the suits, these were superheroes, but they had robots and they would fight big monsters, or there would be little monsters first, the putties, and then there'd be big monsters. Rita Repulsa, Lord Zed, Goldar. I love these characters. I love Zordon and Alpha 5. All of the characters that encompassed this world. And I fell in love with it. What I also fell in love with was the idea that, you know, if you looked at the the colors used for the first Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, red, pink, yellow, blue, and black, and you go, okay, what's the first color that comes to mind that they're missing? You would naturally probably say green. At least, I think most people would say, yeah, green is the first color that comes to mind that's missing. Well, the Green Ranger eventually shows up as a new student named Tommy Oliver, played by Jason David Frank, and is revealed to be a villain working under the control of Rita Repulsa. And this idea just blew my mind. Wait a minute, there is a Green Ranger? It's a villain? It's another student at the school? Which, by the way, for those that don't know, half of the footage, or a decent chunk of it, most of the fight scenes with the characters in suits fighting, you know, all of the different putties and all the the different, like, multiple versions of bad guys, and then the, the Zord battles, all of those are recycled footage that Saban gets from another show in Japan called Super Sentai, which has a long history in its own right, and what is amusing to me is at least in America, and I think in, in other big parts of the world, the, the first Mighty Morphin Power Rangers is the most iconic in the Power Rangers franchise, but I think in the Super Sentai world, that season of those characters is like season 16. It's been going on for that long. Their 16th season of suits and zords of dinosaurs are the most iconic in another part of the world. It's just interesting. So they would take that footage of all the fight scenes and they would just have to create new characters new storylines to fit the footage and created a high school environment with these students attending a high school at Angel Grove that were gifted the power of these 
you know, Power Rangers to protect the Earth from this evil witch that that just was unearthed not too long ago, Rita Repulsa. That's the basic idea you need to know. And as far as the Green Ranger is concerned, I loved the idea of him as a villain. And throughout the show, so on and so forth, eventually Tommy breaks free from Rita Repulsa and ends up just becoming an ally of the Power Rangers. And that was, you know, fine and dandy. But at some point in season two, the entire dynamic of the Power Rangers changed. My favorite ranger, Jason, the leader of the Power Rangers, along with two other rangers, the Yellow Ranger, Trini, and the Black Ranger, Zack, were all selected to represent Angel Grove in a peace summit or a peace conference in Switzerland. And they were forced to give up their powers to three other teenagers that Zordon, who just kind of the the head of the Power Rangers, pun intended, actually, um, and chooses three new teenagers to replace these characters that we've gotten to know since the very first episode. And Jason is replaced with Rocky. Trini is replaced with Aisha. And Zack is replaced with Adam. Now, you can look up on your own why the three actors were replaced in their respective roles. But along with this entire roster change of the Power Rangers, Tommy Oliver was given the opportunity to adopt the new White Ranger persona and on top of this, become the new leader of the Power Rangers. Since Jason the Red Ranger was no longer going to be around. There was no reason that Rocky was going to start calling the shots. So then here was Tommy Oliver given the reins of the Power Rangers. As a kid, when this moment happened, I was genuinely pissed off. I saw Tommy better as a villain I enjoyed him as uh, an ally that could be called on in serious matters, but for the most part, for some reason, I enjoyed him at arm's length. Now, if he had joined the team proper as just the Green Ranger and it was behind Jason, I probably could have warmed up to him in a different way. But as a kid, in this episode, for things to have shuffled around so quickly, and for Tommy to be given the opportunity to lead the Rangers when I saw Billy standing there in the proverbial second-in-command as I saw it, I always saw the Blue Ranger as the second-in-command to the Red Ranger, along with the Pink Ranger right up there. And in one moment, I just had no real interest in watching the Power Rangers anymore. I, I honestly actively stopped watching the Power Rangers when Tommy was leading the charge through the third season I was still a fan enough to see the movie in theaters, which I, you know, genuinely still like, even though my, my favorite character was nowhere to be seen. But regardless, I enjoy the Power Rangers movie and, and have fond memories of seeing it with my family and whatnot. But I honestly had no interest 
for Tommy Oliver leading the Power Rangers. And what was more frustrating growing up was as time went on without realizing, Jason stayed on with the show as Tommy Oliver in many, many iterations. And it wasn't until years later when I was doing some general research on the Power Rangers franchise that I came across just how much he stayed with the the team. Right after Mighty Morphin Power Rangers ended in 1996, there was Power Rangers Zeo, where Tommy Oliver was the Red V Ranger, the Red Five Ranger, for 50 episodes of that show. The Red Turbo Ranger in 19 episodes of the show, along with the Power Rangers Turbo movie, appeared as the Zeo Ranger in Wild Force, was the Black Dino Ranger in 38 episodes of Dino Thunder, appeared in Super Megaforce, which I believe was on Nickelodeon, alongside his last appearance on Super Ninja Steel, as pretty much all of his past iterations, the Green Ranger, the White Ranger, the Zeo Ranger, the Black Dino Ranger, what a massive, what a massive amount of time and energy and effort spent on a character that, you know, it would have been fine if he left after Mighty Morphin. It would have been fine if he left after the second show. I'm sure after... 50 episodes of Power Rangers Zeo after 124 episodes of Mighty Morphin. It would have been okay for him to pass in the towel. But he never said no. Maybe he did. Maybe there were a few Power Rangers projects that he, he said no to for various reasons, but he kept coming back. And what was even cooler is by the time that I was looking into Power Rangers a little bit more, they decided to take the Tommy Oliver character and push it to its limits. In the comic books, they decided to explore the multiverse of the Power Rangers, which, you know, every single franchise is now dealing with the multiverse. It's now the new thing, and we'll get over it eventually. But the Power Rangers started looking into the multiverse, and what we find is that the greatest villain to ever exist as a threat to the Power Rangers, as far as I know, is a character known as Lord Dracon, who happens to be the most evil version of Tommy Oliver. I am absolutely in love with this idea. And in a roundabout way, it, it made me fall in love with Tommy Oliver yet again. But here's the thing. For years... As a fan growing up, when anyone would bring up their favorite Power Rangers character, 99% of the time, most people would bring up Tommy Oliver as their favorite Power Ranger. And when I would say that I actually dislike Tommy, and as a kid I hated it and, and hated that he became the leader and, and brought up the, not necessarily trauma, but just brought up the idea that it even made me stop watching the show, people you know, go through the understanding as a kid in that moment. But everybody was always so flabbergasted as, what, you dislike Tommy? You How could you dislike the Green Ranger? I would explain myself, and everyone would have a, a firm understanding. But let me make one thing clear. 
Tommy Oliver may have not been my favorite Power Ranger. The Green Ranger, the White Ranger, may have not been my favorite Power Ranger, nor any of his other iterations, but Jason David Frank as an actor working on the Power Rangers franchise, there is no denying his level of effort, the performance he brought, and that the word iconic doesn't even feel like it's enough of a word to fully realize what this actor means to this entire franchise for this part of the world. I have always maintained my level of respect. I unfortunately never got to meet the man. And I would have had no problem telling him, hey, when I was a kid, I I liked you at these certain points, but I hated that you took over the team and I hated that Jason was was gone after that. But I respect the amount of work and dedication you give to this character, to this franchise. And and it's it's that kind of respect and dedication that I have and that I would have if I was in his position. If I was ever so blessed to play a character like Tommy Oliver on a show like Power Rangers, I I can't tell you just the the level of appreciation I would have for those who even after 30 years can still show their their love for uh, what was what was put on television as as just a simple hey, we can recycle this footage from one country and film half a show and you know, it had an effect on an entire generation, and still, here we are all these years later, and Super Sentai, still big in Japan, Power Rangers, still big in America. A big reason for that, though, even regardless on what I have to say on my experiences with Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, a lot of that is solely on the back of Jason David Frank. In regards to some of the news that has come out in regards to his passing, it really hurts me on a personal level to have a man who is so beloved and and was told on a regular basis and, and was active on social media, was active on the con scene, and I just wish in those few moments beforehand he he could have channeled some of that love that we we all have and that and that admiration and that appreciation that we would have continued to show him for years to come and even though he's gone even if he he would have passed on 30 years from now we will still have to admire and show appreciation and love for what Jason David Frank brought to the Power Rangers franchise and the legacy he left behind in in both television show form, theatrical movie form, video game form, and comic books is never going to be matched by any actor unless 
the franchise is actively pushing for somebody to do so. So I tip my hat to Jason. Uh, Jason, even though Jason, the character in, in Power Rangers was my favorite, Jason, the man, is my favorite. My heart is out to you. Uh, my condolences uh, to the friends and family of Jason David Frank. Thank you for joining me on this episode. Thank you for spending your time with me. And for those of you out there who feel alone, please reach out to somebody. Let them know how you're feeling. Because trust me, there's always going to be someone out there that you can find that loves you that can appreciate you, and you're not alone in the battle. As always, ladies and gentlemen, please stay safe, be kind to one another, and come aboard again to another episode of I'm Ready, a SpongePod Squarecast. Till next time, mateys. We'll see each other again soon. Your friend, Tommy.